Welcome to Chatterbox Hub. This podcast aims to be your go-to resource for insights, advice and engagement with all things audio and not only. I'm Yulia Stancheva and I will be your host in this episode. In this podcast, I have the absolute pleasure to chat to the award-winning British voice actor Katie Fleming. Katie is a highly skilled narrator who is experienced in a wide variety of voiceover genres. With an impressive background in TV news and a master degree in English from Cambridge University, Katie brings smart and sophisticated storytelling to every project. Not only she is very talented, bringing depth and energy to any character, but her professionalism and experience shines through any type of voiceover work from medical and educational narration, e-learning and corporate videos, to commercial, video games and Voice of God announcements. Let me remind you of some of Katie's amazing voice work. Running for the tube. Coffee on your favourite top. Birthday meal out. Bolognese down his beloved festival t-shirt. Strawberries and cream. Honey and stem ginger. Eaten mess. Loesley dairy ice cream. Quintessentially British. Welcome to our virtual studio and thank you for being my guest today. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. How are you, Katie? I'm really well, thank you. Yeah, healthy and well and happy. How has lockdown been for you and your family, Katie? It hasn't been too bad. I think I'm very lucky because although I've got two kids, they're older, so they're quite self-sufficient. For me, the the actual daily working routine didn't really change very much because I already have my studio. I already work from home a lot of the time. I have clients all over the world, so that's been very sort of the same weirdly. What's different is obviously having my family around all the time. Um, It must be challenging. (laughs) Exactly. I've been making a lot more meals all the time (laughs) for all of them. So that's been different. But my studio is separate from the house and I have a hardwired internet connection. So I haven't been fighting over the broadband, which is nice. Everybody's mental health has been slightly trickier. So we've been doing a lot of fun stuff too, lots of cooking. We spent the night sleeping on the trampoline we turned it into a big tent and I've done some fun stuff as well I'm still desperate to hug my parents but I'm fortunate that they live within walking distance of our house so we've been able to go for a walk stand in their front garden they open the front door chat to them again I've had that contact with them that is, is so much more real than doing it in a zoom call or on a screen I'm, I'm this sure this is that- so important It really is. It really is. And I'm sure that everyone worldwide is feeling the same thing. Face to face, even if it is um, on a screen, is just not the same as actually face to face. The energy is different. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's actually why a lot of clients still prefer to have me in a studio with them. And I completely get that. Can you tell me more about your journey of setting up a home studio? What were the challenges that you had to face in the very beginning? When I first started to think about doing voiceover, I didn't obviously have any kit or any equipment at all apart from a computer. It was in 2015 that I first started really thinking about it, maybe late 2014. And um, and I'd done a course at the showreel in London called, in, called I don't know, Introduction to VoiceOver or, or Could VoiceOver Be For You or something like that. And I had really good feedback from them and I thought, mm, okay. But obviously they set out all the things you needed to do voiceover. And one of the things that they really stressed was you need a home studio. So I was took that on board and thought, okay, right, I need to learn how to do this. I need to get a studio. So I had some friends around for coffee, a couple of girlfriends. And my friend said, well, come on then, 
let's do it. Where where should we where should we do it? And we had quite a big coat cupboard um, closet for cl- for coats um, in my house with a sliding door. We took all the coats out and shoved them in the other one and put some in the charity shop bags and had a sort out, moved the rail. It's all my friends and me on one kind of one afternoon <laughs> and moved the rail to the front of the cupboard so that the cur- we could put a curtain across and... It was really small. I couldn't stand up in there, but I could sit down. So, yeah, so I was set up in my little tiny cubby hole. It sounded a bit boxy because it was basically a big box. And I just thought, okay, I might as well give it a try because I had nothing to lose. I wasn't working at the time. I was doing lots of charity work. My children were small. I'll just see how it goes. And as long as nobody went in the kitchen went upstairs, flushed the toilet, ran a tap, turned the dishwasher on, (laughs) did any vacuuming. It was completely fine. So I did a lot of recording late at night and early in the morning to start with. That was my first studio. I used it And later on, you did the upgrade. Yes, yes. So the room where I'm in at the moment, it was purpose-built to fit my booth. It's an Esmono sound booth that was installed by Studio Spares, and it was expensive. It was really expensive. It's a great investment, It really is. It really, really is because you can have the best microphone in the world, but I could not have functioned from my coat cupboard during the lockdown because that's where my family were. I know you love your garden, which looks really beautiful on photos. I see that you have passion for nurturing seeds and helping them to grow, a passion that has become the foundation of your branding as a voiceover artist. What helped you to define your branding? And do you have any advice for other voiceover artists who are looking for ways to build their own brand? Yeah, branding is a funny old thing, really. It's it's who you are. We all kind of know who we are, but to put it into an image or a group of words or a colour, it was a whole new thing for me. In my previous life, which we'll talk about later, I didn't have to, I was just me. I didn't have to be a brand. But in the voiceover world, there are lots and lots of people doing voiceover and There are certain things you have to do to stand out. You have to make your auditions memorable, but you also have to make yourself memorable. So branding was something that was quite new to me. And the first time I really thought about it or heard about it was when I heard a talk by Celia Siegel, um, who's American lady um, from Minnesota. And she gave a talk in Los Angeles in 2016 at That's VoiceOver conference. And she talked about branding and and her big message is that she talked about it in terms of color and she said if you paint your whole house and kind of neutral color beige it's not going to offend anybody but it's also not going to make anybody come into your house and go oh wow i love your beige wall because it doesn't pop it isn't memorable it doesn't stick in your mind as oh wow that's something different that's unique that's original that's quirky that's cool it's too plain and neutral yeah And she says, don't be beige. Not everybody is going to like your color or your color palette or your persona, but there'll be enough people who do like it. You can't be all things to all people. If you want to do that, you might as well be beige. That planted a seed in my head. But at that point, I was kind of like, well, I don't know what to brand myself as. And then in 2018, there was the One Voice Conference in London, first year of it. And somebody called Gary Fox, who's a marketing superstar, gave a branding talk called Personal Branding in the Digital Age. And he was saying very similar things to Celia. And I was thinking, okay, come on, you need to get a grip on this. And about the same time, Celia released a book called VoiceOver Achiever, actually takes you step by step through her process 
for finding your brand. And it's brilliant. I can't recommend it enough. Buy it, buy it. It's called Voice Over Achiever and it's on Amazon. It's really good for just helping you find what you are all about and what colors appeal to you, what fonts appeal to you. And at the same time, I was creating my website and I had a photographer friend. I am all about my garden as well as all about my voiceover. And I thought, why don't we do some photos in the garden um, rather than in the booth? And it all kind of grew from there. And Vicky Tessio, who's an amazing voiceover artist, made my website for me. I made a, a video where I kind of introduced myself and chopped together some of my work. And that went down very well as well. And all of these things are part of my branding. But if you say branding with the sort of capital letters, it sounds a bit harsh. And it's really a very soft thing, branding. It's it's you. It comes from your heart and from inside you. Branding is the label that you can give it, but it's just authentically you. And that's kind of where the storyteller idea came from, because I call myself Katie Flamen Storyteller because I needed a way to connect my previous working life, because I haven't always done voiceover, with this current life. And telling stories is what I've always done. So that kind of linked in with the gardening and stuff too somehow. It all sort of you together. are a storyteller. You have a master's degree in English literature from Cambridge University, after all, and a postgraduate diploma in broadcast journalism. You have also worked as a TV news producer, reporter and presenter for BBC, ITN and Sky. How is this impressive background helping you in your daily work as a voiceover artist? Your question is very big, but I'll just quickly start with the university stuff. So at university, I did English Lit, as you said. And when I was at Cambridge, I did lots of acting, lots and lots of acting and drama. I also did work experience. I worked on the, I worked on the university radio station. I kind of produced my own Desert Island Discs program and things. But then I went and did work experience at the BBC and I really wanted to work in BBC drama, audio drama. Um, loved it. And somebody at the BBC, don't know who, said to me, well, nobody will take you seriously if you just go straight into that. You need to have a background in news. That will mean people will take you seriously. So I thought, oh, okay. And I'd never really thought about doing news. But then I started reading all the papers and becoming a newsy person. And I ended up doing this postgraduate diploma in broadcast journalism, which was basically foundation in radio and TV news production. And it was so super fun. I really enjoyed it. And my first job was as a video journalist for a cable news channel in London called Channel One Television. I was the video journalist and I refused to ride a moped. <laughs> it was bad enough driving in London, let alone riding a moped. But I had my own camera and I would go out and interview people. I'd usually get lost because there was no sat-nav then. Um, and I'd interview people and then... Um, turn the camera around and do my piece to camera. And then I'd come back and we'd edit it. And I also did reading the news. It was so fun. It was so fun. And then they went bust and I went to the BBC and did, did a job in BBC News Gathering. And then I went to Channel 5 News and Channel 5 News was kind of like Channel 1. I did everything. I was a vision mixer. I was a writer. I was a reporter. I read the news updates on Channel 5 News. And as time went on, I learnt the craft of storytelling, really. My broadcasting experience, basic stuff, I learned how to record and edit audio. I learned how to work under pressure, 
which I do some live event announcing now and working on a live TV news broadcast when you're the program editor and you're controlling what happens and the feed goes down from wherever and you have to call the shots and go to this and boss everybody around. That is actually quite similar to being a live event announcer where, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear, but if the thing hits the fan, it's all down to you. Those are the same skills. But ultimately, it comes down to storytelling. You were a key player in the live on-air control room on 9-11. I guess you still have very vivid memories from that time. How was it for you to ride the storm? Yeah, that was an amazing day. Um, very long time ago now, but still very clear in my head. That day, I had already produced the Channel 5 News breakfast program. So I had been in the newsroom from four o'clock in the morning. We'd done our show. Then we kind of planned for the next day. I'd just come back from lunch and my editor was by the door. I Normally I would go home about two o'clock um, after getting in at four and the news, the uh, channel controller was at the door and he said, there's something going on in America. Can you come, can you come back quickly? And I was back in the newsroom and I didn't leave until seven o'clock that night. Our coverage on Channel 5 news was normally only when our programs were scheduled, but we very quickly the the whole channel came across to us. So what we were putting out was what everybody was seeing. Gosh, I'm getting goosebumps talking about it. It was it was horrendous, but the biggest news story ever. And I my job was to sit in the gallery, which is like the name for the control room, and we were getting pictures and wire feeds. So from uh, news agencies like like PA, the Press Association and Reuters, they were dropping in all the time with headlines. And the presenter, um, Charlie State, um, was sitting there and I would read out in his ear what Reuters was were saying and what PA was saying. And he would say it. And we were taking the live footage. And I mean, I'm sure you remember how horrendous it was, but there was footage, there was footage of of the towers on fire. There were shots of people falling and jumping from the towers. And we were very careful about what we were showing because that was that was somebody falling to their death. And what we were witnessing live on television was a mass execution. But it was a developing news story. And Then another plane hit then hit another tower and then there was talk of the Pentagon and it was just it was unbelievable. That really speaks of your professionalism because you have to strip down all your emotions to be able to deliver the news. Yes, you had to be neutral. And it was it, it actually only struck me quite a long time after the event just what it meant and what had happened, because there was so much going on. There, there isn't really time to think, but you always have to have that editorial, ethical voice saying, is it right for us to do this? Is it right for us to broadcast this? And some news channels were repeating every sort of 15 minutes or every 10 minutes some of those really awful shots. And ITN has very strong editorial guidelines and we were extremely careful what we showed. And sometimes we had showed stuff that was live, but then would come away from that because it just wasn't appropriate to to show but yes you have to be dispassionate you have to be professional absolutely because it's it it was it was us sharing with the world this most un most extraordinary time there wasn't really any terrorism before then i'm sure there was in the world but for for british people people worldwide 
it was a thing after 9-11. It was and, a huge thing. Uh, it, was, it was amazing. It was amazing. How can someone like you, who has um, such a lucrative and prestigious job as a program editor and executive producer, how can you leave this job? Uh, what made you look for a change and start the career as a voice artist? Oh, that's easy to answer. Babies. <laughs> um, I had a baby. News, particularly national news, is very full on, as you've probably gathered. You do very long hours, you do funny shifts, you and you obsess about the news. You watch all of your programs and then you watch everybody else's and see what they did and how they did it and what they said. So I had babies and I didn't want somebody else to bring them up and look after them. So I went on maternity leave in summer 2005 and I never went back, which was quite a big shift because we moved out of London to have my son in down here in um, the village where I still live, and um, which is West Sussex. I never went back and I didn't work in broadcasting again at all. And I didn't work, paid work really at all for another six, seven years while my kids were small. It was it was the children. <laughs> it was their fault. <laughs> They diverted you into a very exciting and fabulous career path. I'm now doing what I was born to do. Well, as someone who carefully cultivates their voiceover skills, you are always learning. You're always studying with coaches, taking courses, attending conferences, classes and workshops. What were the best classes and workshops that you have attended so far and that uh, you would highly recommend to other colleagues? Oh my goodness. It's true. I think I think we are always learning. I learn something new from every job that I do and from every workshop or talk that I attend or listen to. I think my most kind of life-changing workshop that I attended was with Dave Fenoy, who is an, an incredible video game actor from LA. And he came over to London as a guest of the VoiceOver Network a few years ago. And he was doing this workshop and people who did it, it was a whole weekend about creating characters for video games. And I didn't really know very much about video games and I didn't really know very much about acting, to be honest. I did loads of acting at uni, but I'd been a news person for nigh on a decade and then I'd done playing with babies for another five years or so. So it was it was very exciting to me, but I didn't know anything about it. And that first year, Dave was full up with the workshop. I couldn't get a place. So I did a one-to-one with him in person in London just for an hour. And he gave me some some copy and I performed it. And he said, don't read the words, read the phrases. And you need to become this character. And it just some very kind of obvious, simple, um, but extremely well phrased advice. And the things that he said really sunk in and I practiced and practiced. And then the next year he came back and did the workshop and I did the workshop and I loved it. And he said to me how much I'd improved since that one-to-one, then I was hooked. Um, So that was awesome. I'm so lucky. I've coached with lots of people. There are some amazing opportunities out there. Um, The VoiceOver Network I mentioned, they have great visitors come over, people from London, people from further afield, who do incredible courses. I'm currently training in dubbing acting with Stefan Kornicard, but I've done his Creating Characters weekend workshop, which is awesome. I'm coaching with Nancy Wolfson by phone. She's in um, America. That's for acting for advertising. I've done workshops with 
Ellie Ray Hennessy. I've been to the Gravy for the Brain One Voice conference three years in a row. This year was online. I've been to That's Voice Over in America quite a few years in a row, started in 2016. I'm doing courses right now with new people that I've not worked with before, which is really interesting. I think just find something that resonates with you and book on. Because and never stop learning. Never stop learning. It's the, the when you can be in a room with with a group of people, you learn from them, you learn from the coach, you learn from yourself, from your own performance. It's brilliant. And you make some great friends too. A lot of stuff is online at the minute, which is a slightly different experience, but it also means that opportunities that maybe wouldn't have been available before now are. So that's great. Yeah, good point. You won the One Voice Award, Voice of God in 2018, and then you won the Voice of God at the One Voice Award ceremony in 2019. You're also a nominee for One Voice Awards, Best Female British Voiceover Artist for three years in a row now. Do you ever relax after your talents have been acknowledged or do you still keep yourself on your toes? <laughs> no, I don't relax. I'm not very good at relaxing. Um, <laughs> I think all of this awards business, it's some people sort of say, oh, what's the point of that? For me, particularly with coming f to the to the voiceover world from a non-acting background and you're working by yourself, nobody is there clapping you and saying, oh, you did a great job. You know if your clients are happy, but you don't get anybody evaluating your work, really. What I get from the awards, apart from that it's really fun to dress up and put on a nice dress and get your eyelashes done and all that stuff, I get peer group acknowledgement that I'm doing a good job. And that's really and the recognition to me. Yeah. That's it's really important to me. It's great for marketing and everything else, and you can say, "Oh yes, I'm I'm nominated for this and blah de blah." But for me, it's a check in that yeah, I'm I'm at the top of my game. I'm doing all right. Other people in the industry who know better than me think I'm doing well, and for me, that's what I like. Perhaps it's, it comes from a position of insecurity, like I was sort of saying before, because of not being an actor, and that's why I do all the training. I'm doing a, a, a at the moment a, a course with. Nick Redman uh, on breathing, breath work for voiceover. And everybody knows how to breathe, right? But it's really important. I've done Alexander Technique. I'm working with thinking actors at the moment, doing a course on Stanislavski because I never got that because I didn't go to drama school. And, and so many things are to fill in those little voices in the back of your head that make you go, mm, you don't know that. They'll find out. Or you're not very good at that. You could improve, right? So That's why I, I like to, as you say, keep on my toes because you're only as good as your last job, actually, and or your last group of jobs. So you want the clients to keep coming. And the best way to keep fresh and to keep getting better is to train and to stick yourself in for an award because you never know. They might, they might give you a nomination. How cool is that? Well done. I, you have achieved so much for these five years. Your hard work really pays off. Yeah. To start with, it was a hobby. My husband was the breadwinner. I was looking after the kids and the house and the cleaning and the garden and all those other things that people do. But it, I wasn't, it wasn't down to me to pay the mortgage. So to start with, it was a hobby. But I just loved it. And then I started getting paid for things, paid, you know, well. And then it became a, a business. And now it, it's a business that I'm really passionate about. And there is so, there's so much for me to improve on. 
and I just want to get better. And and I've, I knew not the first thing about running a business, absolutely nothing. So that was a massive learning curve. I'd, you know, done producing and um, and broadcasting before, but the running a business stuff, what? I had no idea. So that I need to still improve on. But one of the things that I worked out pretty quickly was what I was good at and what I was not good at and then what I was never going to be good at. <laughs> so I'm never, ever going to be good at the numbers. So, so being found... clear about what you can do and what you can do and yes. what you can improve is extremely important It's very for you important. to progress. Yes. So I found a wonderful bookkeeper who was somebody I'd worked with on when I was doing lots of volunteering work. We put on a ball, a charity ball, and she was the um, coordinator of that and ran ran the money. And she is now my bookkeeper. So the money side of things, they're sorting for me, which is You have someone because, look after them. Yes, because now I, then I can devote more time to the other things. On the creative part. Yeah. What are the most exciting projects that you have worked on and your proudest moment in your voiceover career? Gosh, that's, that's a really, really hard question because I've done lots of jobs that I'm really proud of and lots of lots more things have happened that I was really proud of. So oh, that's such a big question. Um, I've worked on some brilliant projects. I've been really lucky. Um, I was able to work on a project called Ocean Rift, which is for the Oculus Rift video game platform, um, virtual reality. And I basically, you can swim in any ocean in the world, um, past, sort of in the past. So you might meet some dinosaurs. Uh, I am the voice of the thing that you come across. So if you want to know what it is you're looking at, if it's a, a humpback whale or a, a spider crab or a plesiosaur, you reach out with your swimmy hand and touch the thing and then I'll tell you about it. So that was so cool. One of my first jobs was working for a company called Slurpee Studios, an animation studio in the UK. And I was the narrator of a series of animations of Shakespeare plays for kids. So I narrated half of them and I played all the female characters in in um, a whole selection of Shakespeare plays, which was very cool with simple language. And I've got a piece actually as part of that series about the life of Shakespeare on my YouTube channel. And it appears to have been um, taken up by Brazil as their national curriculum. So that one video has had I, I I've lost track of how many hits it's had on my YouTube channel. Something like 50,000 hits or something. <laughs> my other my other videos have all been watched by about 10 people. Um, and yeah, so that's doing quite well on my YouTube channel. I've done lots and lots of wonderful, wonderful projects. And I must just say very quickly about when I was able to be the presenter at the one, um, I was the presenter at the Voice Arts Awards in um, Los Angeles last year. And that was unbelievably cool so i'm really really lucky i've done some wonderful wonderful things you have built your own clients database communicating with your clients directly not through an agent how can a voice actor build a strong relationship with their clients and make sure that they will come back that's another mega question but i think the short answer is be amazing be outstanding give the best customer service if you once the hard bit is getting a client to come to you the first time If they've had a wonderful experience working with you, if you have produced the best quality work, you've maybe under-promised and over-delivered, perhaps tell them that you can get it to them by Friday lunchtime and you send it on 
Thursday lunchtime. Perhaps tell them that um, there's no way that you can get everything done in three days and you do it in two. Just, just add on a bit of extra slack. Give yourself a slack, some slack, and they will think you're incredible. Um, it's not lying. It's over-promising and no, <laughs> no, over-delivering and under-promising. Is that right? Over-promising, under-delivering? Yes. I don't know. Whatever it is, <laughs> do that thing. <laughs> and just be, make them look good in front of their boss. Be the very, very best you can be. Because I, I always want to buy from companies that give outstanding customer service and wonderful products. You know, you are a product and you are a business and you are a customer service operator. You're everything. So you have to be five stars in absolutely everything. And that is the way to make your clients come back to you. Katie, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for being such a wonderful guest and for sharing with us your exciting stories of such an amazing career. You are an inspiration. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it's an absolute honor to, to be a part of this brilliant podcast. This podcast was brought to you by Chatterbox Voices. Hatched, presented and produced by me, Julia Stancheva, with special thanks to my guest, Katie Flemon. Best of luck to Katie for her nomination for One Voice Awards 2020 for Best British Female Voice of Artist. Thank you for listening to this show. If you have enjoyed it, please do leave a rating as this really helps our podcast grow.